0: Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from John 19. Listen carefully to God's gospel. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge "...with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth." So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, "...it is finished." And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the day of preparation, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day... The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately Blood and water came out. And he who has testified, and and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Thus far, the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this good news that we have just heard. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us, what he did for us on this good Friday. And we ask that as we meditate on it that we would grow in our trust in you, that we would grow in our joy of the Lord as we consider the length and width and height and depth of your love and the beauty of the good news that has saved us. Help us even in this hour by your spirit and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to see you all this Lord's Day. It's good to bring the Word of God to you. And uh, before we get started, I'll plug once again our, our Sunday school coming up in about a month and encourage you to commit to that on September 12th. We'll have our first Sunday school at 9.30, 9.30 to 10.20 before church starts at about 10.40, 10.45. And it'll be a good time of fellowship in the Sunday school, and then between Sunday school and church, study God's Word, pray together, eat some snacks together down in the pillar room. So we'll launch on September 12th for kids, toddlers, children, youth, and adults. <clears throat> well, if the main thread of world history is the biblical story, and if the center of the biblical story is Christ. And if Christ came primarily to go to the cross, then it follows that the death of Christ on the cross is the climax and the focal point of world history. The cross is certainly the climax and the focal point. Even the hinge ...of John's Gospel. Every word in the previous 18 and a half chapters... ...has been building... It, ...it's been pointing us to... ...building toward our passage today. Those 15 verses that I just read. In particular, the first three. The cross of Jesus... Resolves the most basic, the most ancient, the most universal, if it can be most universal, problem of mankind. It's a problem that plagues 100% of the people who have ever been born. It plagues you no less than it plagues me. It plagues me No less than it plagued Adam and Eve, beginning in Genesis 3, and every human between Adam and us. Ever since Adam plunged the human race into sin and separation from God, man has needed, you have needed, I have needed, to be redeemed, saved, atoned for rescued from the punishment that every human naturally deserves, every one of us. You see, we don't have peace with God naturally. You don't have peace with God naturally. And yet, peace with God is what we were made for in the beginning. It's what you were made for. And it's the thing that you and I need more than anything. And it's, in a sense, it's what you want, what we want, what everybody wants more than anything. Even if not everyone is willing to have that peace. You see, everyone, not just believers, everyone knows at some level that salvation... Redemption, rescue is what he or she needs most. Even the world knows this and and we catch glimpses of this at times, don't we? You, You can see this in the way society often talks about those who have committed particularly egregious acts. These sinners are often talked about in terms of their redemption or salvation or atonement. Someone might ask, Has he done enough to atone for his sins against humanity? Can can he ever be saved from his past? Will he ever be able to redeem himself? These terms and concepts pop up even in the conversations of the world because they're hardwired into our DNA. Built into all of us is the understanding that Sin must be atoned for. Built into all of us is the belief that sinners deserve justice and therefore need deliverance. We need to be redeemed, delivered, saved. Sinners need salvation. Built into every one of us is this understanding that sins must be dealt with. Addressed, even punished. Our justice system is built on that understanding. Now, while this need and the understanding of this need is universal, at some level, it's universal, this understanding is worldwide. There's only one place where humanity can find the solution. There's only one place where we can be truly informed about this understanding of sin and salvation. It's the Bible. The biblical story from Genesis to Revelation is a story about sin and redemption from sin. It's about the reestablishing of peace between God and humanity. It's about how mankind can be saved from sin and enjoy fellowship with God forever. The Old Testament is full of mankind's pleas for salvation and God's promises of salvation. The Old Testament provides the answers to humanity's questions are the most important questions. Where will mankind get help? The Old Testament answer is God will intervene. God will send salvation. How will God intervene? How will he fulfill his promise to save? The Old Testament answer is God will send a king, a savior king who will bring that salvation and he will redeem the afflicted By being afflicted himself. In today's passage, John records four different Old Testament prophecies of Christ's suffering, and he shows how all four of them are fulfilled at the cross. The death of Christ is God's intervention. The cross of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in scripture. His promises of salvation from sin. The coming king is sovereign. He is powerful, righteous. He is God himself. But he also suffers and dies for sins. In last week's, Text, John focused his camera on the details surrounding the cross, above it, below it, and by it. First, he directed our attention to that title, the sign above the cross, which said Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then he cut from that scene, and the next image we saw was Roman soldiers. At the foot of the cross, below the cross, dividing the garments of Christ, casting lots for his tunic. Finally, in the last scene, John shows us the family members and, and close disciples by the cross. Well, in this week's text, John, focus, John focuses his camera on the person hanging on the cross mankind's savior and king. The cross of Jesus completes the first half of the biblical story, but it also begins the second half of the story. It serves as that hinge and climax and center of all of redemptive history, including what is to come, what is future still to us. And John reminds us again in verse 41 that the main events in the history of redemption all take place where? In a garden. We've talked about that before in this series. The first part of the biblical story began in a garden, the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 2. And at the other end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22... We see that the biblical story also ends in a garden. The New Jerusalem is both a city and a garden. It's a garden city. And right at the center of this story, right in the middle of salvation history, at that hinge point, are the gardens of John 18, John 19, and John 20. In John 18, Jesus was arrested in a garden. Here in John 19, Jesus is crucified in a garden. Uses that word twice. And in John 20, we'll see Jesus is resurrected in a garden. If you'd like to hear more about the significance, theological significance of that, you can go to, the I think, the first sermon on John 18 and, and listen, or you can come back next week. We'll talk about it a little more. And the point John is making here is that Jesus, the new Adam, through his cross, through his cross, is fulfilling the entire biblical story. Okay? He's fulfilling the entire biblical story. He is giving life to the world. He is establishing In his cross, the world to come. His cross is the transition point from the old creation to the new. Your transition from your old self to your new self, from the old Adam to the new man, new Adam Christ, is through the cross. That's where it happens. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice of God. He has completed in full the requirements of the Passover, which was laid out in the book of Exodus in particular. Beginning and ending in a garden, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus fulfills the entire story of redemption. So our lesson today, our gospel lesson today is is composed of three scenes, each one detailing a, a, a significant aspect of Christ's death and burial. The first scene, verses 28 to 30, record records the final words of the word made flesh. And in those final words, he declares in one word, we'll see, that he has completed his father's mission. The second scene, verses 31 to 37, depict Jesus as the perfect sacrifice who fulfills the Old Testament promises. And then the third scene, verses 38 to 42, describes how two of the lesser known disciples of Jesus, perhaps new converts to Jesus, give his body a proper Burial. Today we'll just cover the first scene, verses 28 to 30. So look with me again, if you have your Bible open or your phone scrolled to John 19. Look with me at John 19, 28 to 30. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. According to verse 28, Jesus knew that he had accomplished everything he had been sent to do. Once again, Jesus is in complete control. He's not a helpless victim. He's a faithful son, the faithful son of God completing the work that his father assigned to him see he is finishing something on the cross it's not happening to him he is actively doing it and jesus consciously saw himself on the cross as fulfilling all of god's old testament promises we also know that jesus was meditating on and even praying out loud the psalms while while he was hanging on the cross Remember remember, I said last week or the week before when, when, when Jesus was put in a vice, when he was squeezed, out came prayer, out came God's word. And so we might imagine that when Psalm 69, 21 came to his mind to fulfill it, he said, I thirst. Knowing that that would trigger the soldiers to do something that would fulfill Psalm 69 21, which says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. The mind of Jesus is so steeped in Scripture that he understands, even in this moment, the relevance of this verse to himself. But when Jesus says, I thirst, he's not just fulfilling the Old Testament. There's something else going on here that I I want us to see. There's something else being fulfilled. So we We shouldn't limit the fulfillment here to Psalm 69. That's obvious. That's true. But we can't limit it to that. After all, if you look... John doesn't quote this verse or refer to it overtly the way he does in other places when he's showing how Christ fulfills an Old Testament Scripture. And in fact, even in the passage I read, if you look at those other formulas where he's talking about the fulfillment of Scripture, you'll notice that the formula looks different. In fact, in the Greek, he uses a different word for fulfilled. He doesn't quote it here as he quotes it elsewhere different order something john is alerting us here something else is going on here yes i I want you to think of psalm 69 but i'm not quoting it i'm not referring to it the same way and the difference is a clue that he has more than just the old testament fulfillment in mind when jesus says i thirst his own words Words that he spoke earlier in his ministry, words that are recorded in John's gospel, are also being fulfilled. We, we've, this is not the first time we've seen this, is it? We've seen before that John likes to do this. He likes to equate the words of Jesus with Scripture. So he likes to treat Jesus' words as as though they are scripture because they are God's words because Jesus is God. This is one of the ways he shows us that Jesus is, in fact, Yahweh in the flesh. So, how is I thirst a fulfillment of words that Christ spoke earlier in John's gospel? Well, as you've been thinking about this, as I've been talking about this, you you may have already called to mind that this isn't the first time Jesus has asked for a drink. Right? Back in chapter 4. When he's in Samaria. He's at that well. What does he ask that woman? That Samaritan woman? He asks her for a drink. And then he goes on to tell her Where she can drink and find eternal satisfaction. He goes on to tell her where she can find living water. After saying, Can you get me a drink? Can you quench my thirst? His point after that is to teach her where she can get a drink, where she can quench her thirst. Then in chapter 7, he spoke of the thirst again that only he can quench. And he gets more explicit this time. He says in John 7, if anyone thirsts, I think it's verse 38, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So there he talks about thirsting and drinking again. Then in chapter 18, when Peter tried to prevent Jesus from getting arrested, tried to intervene, Jesus said, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Our Lord's drinking of this undesirable wine, this sour wine, symbolizes his drinking of the undesirable cup that the Father had given to him. He drank God's cup of wrath to the bitter dregs. By drinking of this cup, Jesus quenched your thirst, and he quenched God's wrath at the same time. Christ's thirst represents the agony of the crucifixion. certainly wasn't the worst thing he experienced, but it does symbolize, it represents his agony on the cross. In his own thirst, in his pain, in his suffering, Jesus fulfilled his promise to that woman. His promise to the woman at the well to quench the thirst of those who believe in him and come to him. Jesus quenches our thirst. He quenches your thirst by suffering, bleeding, thirsting, dying for you. The source of that living water is the cross. The living water that flows out of your heart first flows into your heart from the cross. You're not the source. Christ and his cross are the source of that living water that flows through you and out of you. We shouldn't confuse the drink offered here to to Jesus in verse 29 with the wine mixed with myrrh that people offered Jesus on his way to the cross. Remember, he got two offers. Uh, Jesus refused the wine mixed with myrrh, which was designed to dull the pain. He refused the, the cup of painkiller because he was fully resolved to drink instead the cup of suffering that God had assigned to him John's gospel is unique in mentioning the sponge that uh, that sponge that was placed on the hyssop the, the hyssop branch that was raised up to his mouth and we need to ask, why does John give us this detail? It, it connects the blood of Christ, once again, to the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus. In Exodus 12, Moses told the people, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin." And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. That, that would have been probably the first thing that came to the mind of any, any Jew or any person who knew the Old Testament when they heard or read this verse in John 19 about the hyssop branch. They would have immediately thought, oh, hyssop, Passover Next week, we'll look at this second scene, verses 31 to 37. And John will show us there again that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who fulfills the Passover requirements and who is and who takes away the sins of the world. In verse 30, Jesus utters the cry, It is finished. That's the good news of Good Friday. It got finished. It got done. It got accomplished. It is completed. It is accomplished. This is one word in the original. And this one word declares that everything God wanted to accomplish. Has been completed to perfection in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. This isn't, it's a cry, but it's not a cry of defeat. It's it's not even a mere announcement that he's about to die, It's it's an announcement of victory, it's an announcement of success. The victim is the victor. And from the cross, the victor declares victory over the forces of sin and darkness, the principalities in the air. A victory won, not in spite of going to the cross, but by means of the cross. With this one word, with this one word, the word made flesh speaks forth a new creation and the light of the world shines forth in the darkness. This one word which means it it is fully and finally accomplished. This one word summarizes the gospel and establishes the Christian faith. With that, Jesus bowed his head and the text says there at the end of verse 30 that he gave up his spirit. No one took his life from him. No one seized it. The devil didn't take it. The Roman soldiers didn't take it. The Jews didn't take it he gave it Jesus said back in John 10:18 no one takes it from me but i lay it down of my own accord i have authority to lay it down and i have authority to take it up again this charge i have received from my father he's doing now what he was talking about then giving up his spirit is the is his Culminating act of love and obedience to his father. But I want to show you something that you you may not have seen before. The last phrase in verse 30 actually says, more woodenly, more literally, and this this is very significant, And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. Now, it's true that the word the, the definite article in Greek, can function like a pronoun. So translating it, his spirit, is appropriate. But it's also true that John, if he had so wanted, easily easily could have removed all the ambig- ambiguity by simply using the pronoun his instead of the definite article the. As it stands, the text says he gave up the spirit. And, and you've got to think about John's audience here. Uh, perhaps some of them had been reading other letters, perhaps, maybe Paul's letters, or if not, they had been hearing the lingo, the words that the church and its teachers, its preachers were using about the Spirit. Paul says three, refers to the Holy Spirit three times as the Spirit of Jesus, or the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of the Son of God. But just the Spirit in general. Makes, would have made those early Christians reading John think of the Holy Spirit. That's a phrase used to refer to the Spirit. So he could have remo- removed that ambiguity by just saying his spirit, you know, the spirit of him, you know, little s spirit. He gave up his life. That's, that's all that's going on here. One commentator called John's usage here very strange language not grammatically impossible. It's just odd. It's not what you might expect. And I think John is being intentionally awkward. So what does he mean? What's the point? What does he intend to communicate? Which one is it? Is he simply saying that Jesus gave his spirit to the Father and died? Just, he decided to use the definite article instead of the personal pronoun. Or is he saying that in his death... Jesus somehow gave over the Holy Spirit. As is often the case in John's gospel, the ambiguity and the strangeness seem intentional. It's hard to to come to any other conclusion, especially since it would have been so easy for John to avoid this odd wording. And so the point here is that we're not supposed to pick between the two interpretations. This is a common device used by biblical authors, literary authors. The awkwardly phrased language intends to do two things. It describes the death of Jesus, his giving up of his little s spirit. And it also depicts The direct theological link, the connection between the death of Christ and his giving of the Holy Spirit, his sending of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons Jesus died was so that he could give the Spirit. Now, I don't think John is saying that this is when it happened, this is... You know, the moment it happened, we know later in John he's going to breathe the Spirit on his disciples and then Pentecost he's going to send the Spirit. So John is not contradicting that, saying, no, this is actually when it happened. All he's doing here is he's drawing a connection between the giving up of his Spirit, his death, and the giving over of the Holy Spirit. And how that latter event is based on, founded on the former event. It's based on the cross event. Back in John 7, right after Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The very next verse comments, now this he said about... The Spirit, In other words, the, the rivers of living water are the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The, that living water that flows from the cross through you and out of you, out of your heart, is the person of the Holy Spirit. It's not, a, not just a thing, it's a who? It's a person, the Holy Spirit. Jesus had to die so that you could receive this living water. He had to die on the cross so that you could receive the Holy Spirit. And so what's being communicated in this very strange language at the end of verse 30 is that the giving up of the little s spirit of Christ is directly related to the giving out of the big s spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Our Lord gave up his spirit on the cross so that he could give out the Holy Spirit to his people. So how can we, how can we summarize and apply all of this richness. The last sentence Jesus spoke on the cross before he died was a one-word sentence. A word, one word in the Greek, and a word that declared the completion of the work assigned to him by the Father. The work that he completed was the work of salvation from sin for God's people. That's, that was his work. That's why he came. That's what the story of Scripture is about. His work as sin bearer and savior was complete when he laid down his life on the cross. This sacrificial offering of himself fulfilled the Scripture's. And it brought the biblical story to its climax, its culmination. God's divine rescue plan was finished. Hebrews 9.27 He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So there's no longer any need for an annual Passover lamb because the penalty for sin has been served completely the price of redemption has been paid in full the justice of god has been completely satisfied god's wrath against you has been completely propitiated your deliverance has been completely secured This is great news. Try, try to imagine that you just heard that for the first time and that you believe it. It's done. It's finished. Jesus completed it all. Jesus paid it all, as the old hymn says. He thirsted so that you could be satisfied in him. He gave up his spirit so that you could receive his spirit. This is the gospel. One commentator put it this way. With one word, all sin is paid in full. With one word, the ruler of this world is defeated. With one word, creation regains hope. With one word, death is defeated. With one word, life is redefined. With one word, the love of God is made manifest. Everything makes sense because of this one word. At the moment the word of God spoke this single word, a new creation happened, just as it did at the original creation. Do you believe that one word so that it applies to you. Do you live as though that one word defines you, who you are, what you're about, what lies in your future? Second Corinthians five twenty one says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. God made the one who never sinned to be sin so that those of us who do sin might become righteous in God's eyes even though we continue to sin. Jesus became a curse for us. He endured separation from God on the cross for us so that we would never have to experience the horror of eternal punishment for sin. Now I'm not saying that the trinity was broken up. That's not the separation I'm talking about. I'm talking about the alienation that we deserved. The innate alienation that we would have experienced even while being in God's presence for eternity is what Christ experienced on the cross for us on our behalf. Because Jesus paid for your sins, if you believe in him, you must come to him, not just once, but every day, empty-handed. When, when, you, when you come to Christ, in a fundamental sense, you come empty-handed. Now there's a different sense in which we offer him our works. You know, we, we offer him our, our two fish. Our five loaves, you know, whatever he's given to us, we offer it and then he multiplies it. But, but below that, underneath that, we come to him first, fundamentally, empty-handed. And so you must become daily, more and more, like that repentant robber hanging next to Jesus on the cross with nothing to offer jesus except his faith nothing another hymn says nothing in my hand i bring simply to thy cross i cling that that's that should be your first prayer your first thought every morning when you understand that your redemption is complete. And this is why, by the way, it's important to get that fundamental understanding. Because when you, when you understand that your redemption is complete in Christ. And there's nothing in your hand that you bring to him. You'll, you'll also understand that there's nothing you can do to keep it, to maintain it, to continue earning it. The moment you stop believing that your salvation is free, absolutely a gift in Christ, you'll start to try to work for it in, in all kinds of different ways, subtly, not so subtly, in ways that you're aware, in ways that you're not aware, you'll wonder why you'll wonder what you should be doing to keep God's favor. you'll wonder if you've lost his favor because you did this or you did that again because you didn't do this as you were supposed to. And, and, and your Christian life will become a list of, ch- of, of duties, a checklist of do's and don'ts. And you'll be keeping this running tally in your head of how well you're doing, therefore how well God accepts you and loves you. And I want you to see, can you see how that will distort your perception of God and your your perception of your relationship with God, your understanding of what it means to be a son of a gracious and giving and loving God whose love is is longer and wider and deeper and higher than you could ever fathom. If, if If you think... It's not finished. If you think there's still something for you to do to be accepted by God, if you imagine that his view, view of you is based on your performance, maybe your most recent performance, maybe the last year of your performance, or maybe it's weighted more to what you've done more recently. I don't know. We all have different ways of thinking about, dysfunctional ways of thinking about this thing. But if that's, if that's how you're thinking, then what is supposed to be a relationship of love and freedom and sweet intimacy, like a loving father with his daughter or his son, will become in your mind a relationship of guilt and dread and distance. And I don't, I don't want that for us. I don't want that for you. Jesus doesn't want that for you. He, he didn't go to the cross to save you to, to then endure that kind of misery. He's got other things for you to endure, but not that. You'll be plagued with worry and doubt about your standing before God. You'll, you'll constantly wonder if he's happy with you. You'll wonder what kind of mood he's going to be in when he comes home from work and finds out what you've done. But if you know in your bones that he's already done everything to secure your salvation and that nothing you could ever do, not the most righteous act that's ever been done could add or subtract from the redemption that he has purchased for you in Christ and that all you need to do is receive this salvation by faith in his son, by trusting in his son, by entrusting yourself to him through his son, by embracing his cross, then you'll relate to God as a child relates to his gracious and giving God. Even the the best father who ever was Is evil compared to God, the Father, the fatherhood of God. So when you're relating to God with an awareness of His unwavering love and acceptance of you, it has consequences in your life. It'll show up everywhere in your interactions. And your time alone, and your time with people, and your thought life, and at work, and your relationship with your wife, or your kids, or your husband, or your parents, it'll show up everywhere. It'll show up in particular in the way you relate to others. Because your peace with God spills out. Your peace with God will spill out into peace with those around you, as well as peace within yourself so don't turn your heavenly father into a capricious angry moody father who demands that you act a certain way and do what he wants you to do before he'll really love you the father is kind and his son is love incarnate your god is good what what else matters really your god is good to you and he's done everything necessary for you to enjoy his kindness to to bask in his love forever If you're a Christian, your standing before God has been settled by the bloody sacrifice of Jesus. If you have received Jesus as your Savior, you'll never be separated from God. Nothing will be able to separate you from God's love for you in Christ Jesus. You'll enjoy eternal fellowship, eternal communion with God in this world and in the world to come. You have no need to fear that sin or Satan or God's law might condemn you on that last day. Your Savior has done all, paid all, finished all, accomplished all, and performed all that is necessary for your salvation. As a believer, then, as a believer in Christ Jesus, take up the challenge